Hey everyone, I apologize for the delay. I was hoping to get this episode out much sooner, but as is often the case, it ended up being far more labor or research intensive than initially expected. And so this episode was inspired by an exchange I had with a viewer in the comments section of the YouTube version of the previous episode I released, uh, the one entitled was Cleopatra Black. In that episode, I discuss how Cleopatra was predominantly of Macedonian Greek ancestry, probably with an added dash of Persian and Sogdian Iranian from early on when her ancestors intermarried with the Seleucids before they got serious about inbreeding in an attempt to preserve the royal bloodline. But the aforementioned viewer took issue with some of the terminology or language I use uh, in that episode to refer to the ancient Macedonians and some of my passing claims or characterizations. And they were very straightforward, but at the same time also good-natured and civil in their approach. And I agree with, or at least see the merit in their criticisms, which were very intelligently and thoughtfully worded. And I definitely put their comments in the category of constructive criticism, which I welcome and I'm thankful for, as humbling as it can be. If I've gotten something wrong, I'd rather be corrected for my own, you know, edification, and so I can issue a correction, so whatever bad information I've unintentionally put out there doesn't continue to lead people astray. But unfortunately, as anyone who's ever visited a YouTube comment section probably knows, not all criticism is constructive criticism. Case in point, someone who's been commenting on my videos for maybe a couple months or so now recently commented on my second Baphomet documentary, which I released not that long ago, relatively speaking. I'm paraphrasing, but they basically said something like, wow, this is so wrong that I had to give it a thumbs down. What did you just go to Wikipedia? Or something to that effect. And I replied, paraphrasing myself now, could you be more specific? Several times in the episode, I read directly from historical and textual sources, including reading the words of Eliphas Levi himself, the French occultist who created the modern Baphomet symbol. And I said, if that's not enough for you, I don't know what is. And I also said something about how maybe he should find another channel to haunt. You know, the person had been leaving moderately annoying comments on my videos for a while, but they weren't necessarily offensive. The feeling I got is that they might be a Christian who was upset by some of my commentary on religion, etc. Which is kind of odd, because I believe their YouTube handle is hung like a horse, or something, you know? Which doesn't necessarily sound like something a wholesome Christian would choose. Well, there is that passage in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 2320. Did a whole episode about it. Uh, yeah, very strange thing to be in the Bible. Or not so strange if you're familiar with some of the odd things in the Bible. Actually, why don't I read that passage from Ezekiel for the fun of it? There she lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys, and whose omission was like that of horses. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth, when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breasts fondled. And fundamentalist Christians are burning other people's books. Anyway, this isn't supposed to be about religion. This is a history episode. 
but I had put up with the person until they became really insulting and obnoxious. If you said something like you claim a quote is from this text, but it's really from that text, or you misattributed something here, or got a name wrong there, I'd thank them for pointing it out. But to just mockingly, you know, say I got the whole thing wrong without pointing out any specific mistakes or errors, or accusing me of just going to Wikipedia or whatever when I'm using multiple sources, chasing down citations, and scouring Google Books and online archives and libraries for direct quotes and additional information, you know? I could be completely wrong, but I have a hunch that they might be a Christian conspiracy theorist a la Mark Dice, who's upset that the facts I present in my Baphomet documentaries conflict with the lurid, paranoid, conspiracy-based narrative they have in their head. Either that or they're just a troll. The two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Anyway, I just had to get that out of my system. Uh, you're probably thinking, wait, I thought this was supposed to be about the ancient Macedonians. Apologies. Let's get back to the much more constructive criticism that inspired this episode. And I'll actually read our first exchange. And so the person says, The Ptolemies were not a Greco-Macedonian dynasty. This implies that Greeks and Macedonians are, were, different ethnicities. The Macedonians were a northern Greek tribe. For the love of Zeus, get it right, my man. And then they continue. Also, the Sogdians were a northern Iranian people who lived largely in what is today Tajikistan. They have since admixed with Turkic people and the Mongols. However, a quick search online will reveal to you a surprising prevalence of blonde, light-skinned people among them. Also, the Persians were Indo-Europeans, as were the Sogdians, so they too would have been lighter skinned than you would find in the Middle East today. The darker complexion, similar to this Persian director, and he's talking about the director of that controversial upcoming, um, documentary series on Cleopatra that I had been criticizing in the last episode. Similar to this Persian director, were only injected into Iran in larger percentages after the Arab conquest in the 7th century AD. Like you, I don't care about her complexion one way or the other, but also like you, I'm a stickler for the truth, and this is what the facts bear out. And then I replied, thank you for the informative response. I completely understand your criticism regarding the language I use in the episode to describe the Macedonians. I believe quote-unquote Greek Macedonian or quote-unquote Macedonian Greek are accepted terms, but at least once I say quote-unquote Greco-Macedonian, which may be less so. Totally agree that the Macedonians were Greek, both culturally and genetically being related to other Greek tribes. I think my language choice was just my way of trying to communicate that they were Greek but also set apart in a sense by their Macedonian identity. After much thought, I think I personally prefer the term Macedonian Greek, as it seems to imply that we're talking about a certain type of Greek. Once again, I really appreciate the comment, and may read it on a future episode, where I do a deeper dive on this subject, as I'm doing right now. And to be honest, I'm not sure if I necessarily said that her, meaning Cleopatra's, complexion doesn't matter. They may be thinking about where I touched on how 
although I always think it's nice to cast someone who's of the same ancestry or ethnic background as the historical figure they're going to be playing, because it adds a sense of authenticity to the performance, at least in my opinion, even more important perhaps is finding someone who bears a resemblance to the person in question or can believably pass as someone of that figure's background. In the case of Cleopatra, I thought the most important thing would be finding someone who looks or could at least pass for Mediterranean and perhaps bears a resemblance to contemporaneous depictions of her, such as we see on coinage or bus. I think there's even Roman frescoes that are thought to depict her as well. Uh, as far as her complexion, I imagine, I think scholars say this as well, she was probably olive-skinned, but realistically, skin shades probably varied throughout the Mediterranean and even within a society so she probably could have been anywhere from relatively light-skinned to a kind of uh, some shade of Mediterranean brown, you know? But the person commenting is right, and I was surprised when I first learned that there were Middle or Near Eastern or Mediterranean peoples in the ancient world who were thought to be relatively light-skinned, um, more so than we would probably imagine. As I discussed in that episode, there's Egyptian art that depicts the neighboring Libyans, for example, as being quite light-skinned. And there's certain historical figures like Caesar Augustus and Alexander the Great who are thought to have been blonde. Uh, but that probably wasn't the usual among the Romans or Greeks, respectively. Yeah, I think Suetonius or Suetonius describes Augustus as having a fair complexion and yellow hair. And the historian Aelian or Aelian uh, described Alexander as being neglectfully handsome with lion-colored or tawny hair and a somewhat stern countenance, I'm paraphrasing. And just so no one calls me out or so I don't have to issue a correction or clarification next week, I believe alien or alien or alien, I've heard it pronounced a few different ways. Whenever I say alien, um, it makes me sound like I'm talking about little people from outer space. But he was not only a historian, but a teacher as well. Okay. And I was actually reading recently about how supposedly in ancient Rome, blonde hair was relatively rare, although I think there were light-haired foreign peoples who were assimilated into the empire, as well as some native Romans or Mediterranean individuals who were, who were just naturally fair or light-haired. But blonde hair supposedly held this kind of exotic allure because it was relatively rare. And there was a fad for a time where Roman women Women would dye their hair blonde or red, which evidently you can even see in ancient frescoes, etc. I thought it was interesting. And I almost left out how I thought I also read in the same article that uh, supposedly Roman prostitutes had to dye their hair blonde by law to separate themselves or differentiate themselves from the rest of society. But apparently it caught on and not only women, but I think some men dyed their hair blonde as well. But I know I'm digressing characteristically. And then the commenter and I had a further exchange in which they seemed to express their concern about certain claims I made in passing, as well as concern over unintentionally playing into the hands of modern revisionists, usually modern Macedonian writers or activists who tried to deny the Greekness of the ancient Macedonians for political reasons. 
And you do have to be careful. I noticed while researching both this episode as well as the last one that if you search, uh, you know, were the ancient Macedonians Greek on Google, uh, some of the top results are links to places that have Macedonia in the title, like historyofmacedonia.org or virtual Macedonia, that have an obvious political agenda and try to claim the ancient Macedonians were completely separate, non-Greek people, which is completely at odds with the mainstream scholarly consensus. So keep that in mind if you decide you want to research this topic for yourself. But Macedonia has a long and complicated history. Over the centuries, there's been demographic changes, influxes of different peoples, border changes or attempted border changes, different nations or countries or empires laying claim to different parts of Macedonia. As I mentioned in passing in the Cleopatra episode, even in modern times, there's been a history of conflict and tension between Macedonia and Greece. In recent memory, for instance, there was that whole naming dispute between Macedonia and Greece, in which even the legacy of Alexander the Great became a kind of political football. But as I'll probably touch on again near the end, it's important to note that the ethnic makeup of modern-day Macedonia, or the Republic of North Macedonia as it's now called, is much different than what it would have been prior to Macedonia's defeat by the Roman Republic in ancient times. And so there's been a kind of political and cultural battle over the identity of the ancient Macedonians which there shouldn't be in a sense since when, of course, at the end of the day, what should matter are the historical facts. And as I understand it, as I mentioned in passing a moment ago, the scholarly consensus seems to be that the ancient Macedonians were a Greek people and that it's really only a minority of historians and once again revisionists who say otherwise. Apparently prior to relatively recent archaeological and linguistic discoveries like the so-called Pella Curse tablet, the consensus was supposedly more divided. But even then, the majority of scholars still recognized or considered the ancient Macedonians as being essentially Greek. But I mentioned the commenter took issue with some of my terminology or wording in that Cleopatra episode, as I allude to or state in our exchange. I think I oscillate between the terms Greek Macedonian and Macedonian Greek, and even once say Greco-Macedonian, when kind of joking off the cuff about the practice of inbreeding in the Ptolemaic dynasty. And that episode was partially scripted, but a lot of it was ad-lib too, which as a content creator, I can tell you is how you can, you know, get in trouble sometimes. You veer off script and you just start casually speaking off the cuff about a historical topic or whatever, and it's easy to slip up and spit something out in passing that you then have to correct or address later. And that point where I used the term Greco-Macedonian was one of the times when I was going off script and kind of ad-libbing. 
And I remember there was like a little voice in the back of my head that was wondering if that was uh, the correct term or an appropriate term, even while I was saying it. And that often happens while podcasting. It's kind of like a spider sense. You'll be speaking and uh, there'll be this little voice trying to steer you away from saying something that you'll later regret or have to correct. I should probably learn to listen to it more. It's kind of like Dexter's Dark Passenger, except it fact checks you instead of telling you to stab things. But the term Greco-Macedonian does exist. It's sometimes used often on biblical sites, I've noticed, to refer to Alexander's empire. Sometimes it'll be used to refer to a conflict between Greece and Macedonia. But I see why it's problematic, because in that kind of situation, the hyphen is usually separating two different ethnicities or cultures, like Romano-British or Greco-Roman. And if the ancient Macedonians were just another Greek people, the term Greco-Macedonian would be kind of redundant, or worse yet, wrongly, you know, be wrongly implying that the Macedonians weren't Greeks, so I get why that bothered the commenter. And I know Greek Macedonian and Macedonian Greek might not seem very different, but I think the nuanced distinction between the order of the words really matters. Greek Macedonian sounds like you're describing Macedonians who happen to be Greek, whereas Macedonian Greek sounds like you're describing a certain kind of Greek. And I'm not a linguistics expert or a historian, but according to my personal inner logic, I think Macedonian Greek seems more fitting or appropriate, and that seems to be the term that's more widely used anyway. And so this is Wikipedia, uh-oh, Wikipedia, but says Macedonians in parentheses Greeks also known as Greek Macedonians or Macedonian Greeks, are a regional and historical population group of ethnic Greeks inhabiting or originating from the Greek region of Macedonia in northern Greece. But I have to admit, while researching these past two episodes, I really didn't see the term Greek Macedonian or Greek Macedonians used elsewhere. What I saw mostly was Macedonian Greek, and my spider sense kind of goes off here too, because I'm wondering if Greek Macedonians is a more modern term used to refer to people of Greek ancestry living in Macedonia, I don't know, or maybe it's just a lesser used term in general. Or maybe I'm just overthinking it as I tend to do with everything. I guess I could have just said Macedonian, but then people who aren't really familiar might not get that when you say Macedonian in relation to the ancient world, you're talking about a Greek culture or ethnic group. That's why when talking about Alexander the Great or Ptolemy or Cleopatra, you can describe them as Greek, Macedonian, or Macedonian Greek, and you'd be right to use any of those descriptors. And interesting uh, fun fact, I believe Alexander the Great was technically only half Macedonian. His mother Olympias was from neighboring Epirus. Well, technically, I think the two regions were separated by the Pindus Mountains, but, uh, you know, you get my point. And I think another thing the commenter took issue with is when I went off this off script again and tried to offer an off-the-cuff clarification for people who might be confused what the whole Macedonian Greek, Greek Macedonian thing, you know, was all about. And I described in passing how they were essentially Greek, but there were some cultural or political differences. 
and I brought up how supposedly certain other Greeks may have looked at them differently, even perhaps as barbarians, and that the Macedonians had a monarchy while other Greeks had city-states. And there's a couple of problems there. One is, I didn't intend to imply that every other Greek society conformed to the city-state model, but the way I worded it, it certainly made it sound that way, so that's my bad. I was speaking too generally. And for the claims that other Greeks looked at the Macedonians as barbarians or non-Greeks, well, some of this can probably be chalked up to political rhetoric, such as that leveled against Philip II of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father, by the Athenian statesman Demosthenes. And barbarian, barbaros, is an onomatopoeic word, a derisive term wielded by the Greeks, who supposedly thought the language of foreigners, non-Greek speakers, sounded like nonsense, a kind of barbar sound. I remember when I was young hearing repeatedly the claim that it supposedly referred to the, the sound sheep make, Baba, you know, but I'm not sure if that's true or if it's just an old wives' tale, as they say. When I looked up the etymology, I didn't see anything about sheep. But who knows? If I'm wrong, let me know. Or if it is true, let me know. But if my research is correct, supposedly it wasn't all that uncommon for Greeks to refer to Greeks from other regions as foreigners or even barbarians, especially if they spoke a different Greek dialect. But we'll explore that more in a bit. I want to start at the beginning. Who were the Macedonians and where did they come from? The Macedonians were an ancient tribe that occupied a region in the northeastern part of mainland Greece, an alluvial plain in the area of the rivers Haliakmen, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the longest river running through Greece, and the lower Axios. The earliest inhabitants of the region are thought to have been the Pelasians, or Pelasgians or Pelasgians, I found about three different possible pronunciations. The Brygs, I think, I only found one pronunciation, B-R-Y-G-E-S, and the Thracians, that one's easy enough. The Pelasgians, let's call them, was a term employed by classical writers to refer to the predecessors of the Greeks. It's come to broadly refer to the primitive or indigenous inhabitants of the Aegean Sea region. The Brags, I'm going with it, were the people of the ancient Balkans. They were supposedly first mentioned by Herodotus, who suggested they were related to the Phrygians. And we've all probably heard of the Thracians, at least in passing. Famously, there was Spartacus, a Thracian gladiator who led a slave revolt against the Romans. And as I understand it, the exact origins of the Thracians are still somewhat unclear, but it's thought that the so-called Proto-Thracians descended from a mixture of Proto-Indo-Europeans and so-called early European farmers, one of many terms referring to a distinct group of early Neolithic farmers who brought agriculture into Europe, beginning around 7000 BCE, moving into Europe from Anatolia through the Balkans. The aforementioned Pelasians occupied Emathia, a region located between the rivers Aliakmon and Ludius, bordered on the west by Orestes. 
It would come to be one of the six earliest provinces of Macedon. The Brags occupied northern Epirus, as well as Macedonia, mostly west of the Axios River, as well as parts of the ancient Thracian territory of Mygdonia, while early on the Thracians had supposedly occupied the eastern parts of Macedonia. Apparently, the ancient Macedonians themselves are somewhat missing from early historical accounts. It's speculated that this may be due to the fact that they had been living in the southern extremities of the region, an area referred to as the Arestian Highlands, since before the so-called Greek Dark Ages, a period spanning from the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization to the beginning of the Greek Archaic period. Macedonian tribes eventually moved downward from Arestis due to pressure from its inhabitants, the Arestai, another ancient Greek tribe that was part of the Molosian or Molossian tribal state. It's thought that they, the Macedonians, settled in Pieria, a region north of Olympus, and mingled with the Proto-Dorians. The Dorians were one of the four different ethnic groups into which the classical Greeks or Hellenes classified themselves. The Greek historian Herodotus, in his histories, refers to the Macedonians as being a Dorian tribe that stayed behind during the great southern migration of the Dorian Greeks. And here's the quote from Herodotus, the Pelasian or Pelasgian race has never yet left its home. The Hellenic has wandered often and far, for in the days of King Deucalion, it inhabited the land of, and this is a place name that I've read before, but I was uncertain of the pronunciation. It's spelled P-H-T-H-I-A, and I heard the Latin pronunciation pronounced as Patea, and I think the Greek pronunciation, which we'd be more interested in, is Thaya. Uh, not, I was almost tempted to say Pythia, but that's the uh, oracle of Delphi. Um, but let's go with Thaya. So, for in the days of King Deucalion, it inhabited the land of Thaya, then the country called Histian. And this is another place name that tripped me up. In this translation of Herodotus's The Histories, which I found on a Tufts website, the name of the region ends with an N, which as far as I can tell is synonymous with another version of the name if you just minus the N at the end. And I've heard it pronounced Histia, Histiaea, Histia, so I'm not sure. But let's try this again. The Pelasian race has never yet left its home. The Hellenic has wandered often and far. For in the days of King Deucalion, it inhabited the land of Thaya, then the country called Histian. Under Osa and Olympus, in the time of Doris, son of Helen, driven from this Histian or Histian country by the Cadmians, it settled about Pindus in the territory called Macedonian. And once again, perhaps an archaic variant, it doesn't say Macedonia, it says Macedonian. From there again, migrated to Dryopia. I think, or Dryopia, and at last came from Dryopia into the Peloponnese, where it took the name Dorian. And just for good measure, I actually have a digital copy of the histories on my iPad in the uh, iBooks app. In this one, the translation's a bit different. 
for these were the most eminent races in ancient time, the second being a Pelasian or Pelasgian, and the first a Hellenic race, and the one never migrated from its place in any direction, while the other was very exceedingly given to wanderings. For in the reign of Deucalion this race dwelt in Thyotis, and in the time of Doris the son of Helen, in the land lying below Osa and Olympus, which is called Histiaeon or Histiaeotis, and when it was driven from Histiaeotis or Histiaeotis by the sons of Cadmus, it dwelt in Pindos and was called Macedonian, M-A-K-E-D-N-I-A-N. So another, perhaps older, I'm not sure, variant spelling of Macedonian. I've also seen Macedonian, also with a K. And thence it moved afterwards to Dryopis, and from Dryopis or Dryopis it came finally to Peloponnesus and began to be called Dorian. And so, grammatical obstacles aside, it's interesting to note that Herodotus seems to suggest that the people he refers to as Hellenes, I've also heard Hellenes, Greeks who fit into one of the aforementioned four Greek ethnic categories, the Aeolians, Dorians, Ionians, and Achaeans, um, and they're named for the sons, and I think grandson or grandsons, of the mythical Helen, in some accounts I found three of them are sons, and I think one's a grandson, and another account, two were sons and two were grandsons. But I know sometimes myths, you know, there's different um, variations or different versions of them. Anyway, uh, named for the sons and, or, and or grandsons of the mythic Helen, uh, not to be confused with Helen of Troy, Helen with uh, two L's, was male, uh, the son of Zeus or Deucalion and the ancestor of the quote-unquote quote, true Greeks, so to speak, named Hellenes or Hellenes in his honor. Um, but that they actually, these people actually did, according to Herodotus, settle in Macedonia. This certainly seems to be Herodotus stating or implying that Macedonians have a Greek pedigree. And Herodotus was a fairly early source. We're talking 5th century BCE or BC, take your pick. I should also mention that this character, Helen, the son of Zeus or Deucalion, Zeus had a way of impregnating people's wives, Deucalion being the king of aforementioned Thyia, and something like the Greek equivalent of Noah, the similarities are actually quite striking, um, his, Helen's name, is the root of the terms Hellenism and Hellenistic. And of course, as already mentioned, the Hellenes or Hellenes, we've probably all heard people talk about the Hellenistic world or the spread of Hellenism. And Hellenism refers to Greek culture, the Greek way of life, etc. And um, once again, it's named for that mythical or semi-mythic uh, figure, Helen. And the fact that Macedonian tribes are said to have settled in Pieria may account for traditions that place their mythic or semi-mythic founder Macedon or Macedon near Olympus in Pieria. And here's a passage from Hesiod's Catalogue of Women, or Hesiodic Catalogue of Women, not to be confused with Mitt Romney's Binder Full of Women. Is that a bad joke? Definitely an old reference. But it pertains to how... Uh, Macedonia or Macedon was supposedly named for its mythic founder, Macedon or Macedon, who was the son of Zeus and Taia or Tia, the daughter of Deucalion, and I believe she was also a, uh, a naiad or nymph. So yeah, if she was a naiad or nymph, most likely she didn't really exist. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, here's the passage. And she became pregnant and bore to thunder-loving Zeus two sons, Magnus or Magnes and Macedon, the horse lover, those who dwelt in mansions around Pieria and Olympus. And there's an alternate southern homeland theory. I believe it was proposed by the late Arnold J. Toynbee, which reminds me of one of those little creatures from Final Fantasy, um, Tonbees. Tonberries, that's it, Tonbees. Uh, but he was an English historian and philosopher of history. But he had proposed that the Macedonians may have migrated north into Macedonia from central Greece. And according to this theory, the Dorian homeland would have been in Theodos. And he cites the so-called traditions of fraternity between the figures Macedon and Magnes, uh, M-A-G-N-E-S. Magnes, I think, or Magnus. And I think Theodos means something like the region of Thea. And was I saying Thia earlier? I, I can't even remember now. I feel so kind of punch drunk. I've been working at this so long. If I did say Thia or Theodos, please forgive me because I looked it up again and I think it's Theodos and Thea. I think. Uh, there's some alliteration. But of course, as we just went over, Herodotus mentions uh, Thea or Theodos as well. And the name of their mythic founder, Macedon or Macedon, comes from the Greek for long, tall, or slender, Makinos, being a cognate with the Doric Greek, Makos, I believe, which is Greek for length. It's thought that the ancient Macedonians were originally called such, either because they were physically tall or had settled in the mountains. Later, the term Macedonian would come to translate to something like Highlander. And there's your plot for the next Highlander movie. Alexander the Great actually faked his death in Babylon, and he's an immortal warrior. That'd be cheesy, but really cool at the same time. If anyone steals that, make sure I get a cut. Anyway, I'm getting silly. As for their language, some suggest it was a kind of sister language to ancient Greek or a dialect with an Aeolic or Aeolic uh, Greek classification. But it's more commonly thought that the ancient Macedonians spoke a North Doric Greek dialect. Either way, the ancient Macedonian language eventually fell out of favor around the 4th century BCE as the Macedonian aristocracy adopted Attic Greek the so-called prestige language of the time. And I believe uh, eventually Koine Greek would replace Attic Greek in that they're kind of similar in a sense. Um, hopefully I have that right. I'm going off script with that. Much of this has been unscripted so far. Here's uh, fingers crossed that I don't end up having to make a slew of uh, corrections or clarifications. And I believe in there the beginning of the episode, I mentioned the so-called Pella Curse Tablet. It's one of the pieces of evidence that leads scholars to believe or reinforces their belief that the ancient Macedonians spoke a kind of Doric Greek. And you guys know me, I love weird esoteric stuff, so a curse tablet, right up my alley. So the Pella curse tablet was found back in 1986 in Pella, fittingly enough, the ancient capital of Macedon, and it's written in a distinct Doric idiom, 
Uh, that's how it's been described. And it's called the Pella Curse Tablet because also, fittingly enough, it bears a curse or quote-unquote magic spell on it. Uh, I put magic uh, in quotations because what can I say? I love this kind of stuff, but I'm a skeptic at the end of the day. And so, specifically, the inscription is a love charm of sorts. And it was written by a woman who wanted to prevent uh, a certain man that she loved from marrying another woman. And the name of the other woman is Thetima, at least I think that's how it's pronounced. And the name of the man is Dionysophon, at least I think that's how that's pronounced. <laughs> Similar sounding and probably, it's probably derived from it, to the name of one of my favorite gods, uh, Dionysus. But here it goes. Of Thetima and Dionysophon, the ritual wedding and the marriage I bind by a written spell. And of all other women, both widows and maidens, but of Thetima in particular, and I entrust to Macron and the daemons, and only when I should dig up again and unroll and read this. And I should pause to say that I looked into this and I read a couple of different translations. I had no idea who Macron was. I know there was supposedly a famous va uh, vase maker in antiquity named Macron, but it's not that Macron. At least I don't think so. Apparently, sometimes when people would um, would inscribe these kind of spells, they would put the spells in, into a grave with a dead person. And the thinking was that the dead person would help deliver the message to the underworld. And, and also, she mentions the daemons. And I think that is where the word, our word demon comes from. But there's very different connotations. Daemons weren't necessarily evil. They were kind of like guiding spirits. And of course, philosophically, was it, um, I want to say Socrates, who supposedly talked about his inner daemon, kind of like your conscience and inner guiding voice. But in this context, the lady in question is appealing to supernatural spirits or guides. And it continues, let's see, I should dig up again and unroll and read this, that she might wed Dionysophon, but not before, for I wish him to take no other woman than me, and that I grow old with Dionysophon and no one else. I am your supplicant. Have pity on, and here in brackets, it says the name Phil with a, with a question mark, Phil being my name. But in cor of course, in um, the ancient Greek language, Phil was kind of like um, a prefix meaning love, like philosophy means love of, uh, love of wisdom, right? And uh, the name Philip means lover of horses, strangely enough. Um, maybe not so strangely because... Um, Actually, the herding of horses and cattle was very big in uh, ancient Macedonia, at least. I imagine other parts of Greece. And I think it's denoting a word there that's partially illegible. But have pity on... Imagine if it really was just have pity on Phil. Please, I need it. But have pity on, then probably partially uh, illegible, dare daemons. For I am a degina... Or <laughs> no jokes, please. And I was reading on another site how apparently this is a word that has kind of stymied or perplexed scholars. Uh, it could be possibly that the person who wrote this is semi-literate. Obviously, 
uh, literate, literate enough to a decent extent, but it could have been a misspelled word, and it could be that it was meant to be a person's name or some other word, but it was misspelled. But it's it's spelled Dagina or Dagina. There's a question mark after it. It's a little mystery that hasn't completely been solved yet. Of all my dear ones, I am abandoned. And I read another translation that basically it's like she's saying she is without friends or whatever. But guard this for my sake so that these things do not happen and wretched Fatima perishes miserably, but that I become happy and blessed. And so I have a couple of quotes of academics commenting on the Pella Curse tablet. And the first one is from James L. O'Neill uh, from the University of Sydney. And it was a presentation at the 2005 conference of the Australasian Society for Classical Studies entitled Doric Forms and Macedonian Inscriptions. So here it is, a 4th century BC curse tablet from Pella shows word forms which are clearly Doric, but a different form of Doric, from any of the West Greek dialects of the areas adjoining Macedon. Three other very brief 4th century inscriptions are also indubitably, indubitably, indubitably Doric. These show that a Doric dialect was spoken in Macedon, as we would expect from the West Greek form of Greek names found in Macedon, and yet later Macedonian inscriptions are in Koine, avoiding both Doric forms and the Macedonian voicing of consonants. The native Macedonian dialect had become unsuitable for written documents. And then there's a Professor Engels from the University of Cologne. Another very important testimony comes from the so-called Pella Curse tablet. This is a text written in Doric Greek and found in 1986. This has been judged to be the most important ancient testimony to substantiate that Macedonian was a northwestern Greek and mainly a Doric dialect. So I'll return now to the unfolding history of uh, Macedonia. And so the Kingdom of Macedonia was founded around the 8th century BCE by the Argids or Argiads. I heard both pronunciations, but the pronunciation I heard more often was Argid, and it's spelled A-R-G-E-A-D-S. It was the beginning of the so-called Argid dynasty, also known as the Temenid dynasty, an ancient Macedonian royal house of Dorian Greek ancestry. It's alleged or thought that Perdiccas I was the first king in this line. The term Temenid comes from the fact that Perdiccas was supposedly descended from the mythological figure Temenus, and the term Argid is actually derived from the word or name Argos, the famous Greek city from Greek history and myth, located on the Peloponnese. People from Argos, or whose ancestors come from or came from Argos, being referred to as Argids or Argives. After the monarchy, the nobility formed the core of Macedonian society. Similar to their Thessalian neighbors, Macedonia's wealth was built largely on the herding of horses and cattle, as I mentioned earlier. Traditionally, Macedonian society had been comprised of various clans, ruled by independent families, but by the time of Alexander I, who reigned in the 5th century BCE, Argid rule seems to have been accepted. 
initially a frontier kingdom on the border of the Greek world, the Macedonians began gradually expanding outward from their home in the Haliachman Valley, driving out or subjugating and or absorbing neighboring non-Greek tribes, including or mostly Thracians and Olarians. Numerous military innovations during the reign of Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, greatly aided this trend of conquest and expansion. One of Philip's innovations was the sarissa, a long spear or pike-like weapon, ranging between about four to six meters in length. It was used in combination with the Macedonian military formation known as a phalanx. The result was essentially a marching wall of death. Philip continued to add new lands to Macedonia and reduce tribes that had attacked him when he had first become king to semi-autonomous peoples. Macedonians settled in many of these new territories and colonized areas from Thrace up to the river Nestis, although as cited by the Greek historian and geographer Strabo, the population of Upper Macedonia supposedly remained mostly thraco -Illarian. The power amassed by Philip II would prime his son Alexander to become one of the greatest military conquerors the world has ever seen. Alexander, technically Alexander III, a gifted military tactician with an unrelenting desire for conquest, carved out a kingdom stretching from Greece to the edge of India. Alexander, also known of course as Alexander the Great, certainly considered himself Greek, and one of his main goals was the conquest of Persia, supposedly in part as revenge for Persia's invasion of Greece during the Greco-Persian Wars. Despite this, Alexander also seemed to admire or value Persian culture, perhaps a bit too much for the liking of some of his men. As mentioned in the Cleopatra episode, Alexander had also conquered Egypt, and it was one of his generals, Ptolemy, who had settled there and founded the Ptolemaic dynasty, of which Cleopatra, Cleopatra VII, was the last active ruler. But I want to stop here and explore how other Greeks in antiquity viewed the Macedonians. It's thought that conflicting views about the ethnic identity of the Macedonians, as expressed by ancient historians, statesmen, and writers, may be partly responsible for what debate there's been on the matter among modern scholars. This is just my personal speculation, but it seems logical to assume that at least part of why the Macedonians may have been viewed somewhat differently is that they had dwelt on the edge or fringes of the Greek world, but it's important to remember that the Macedonians were for all intents and purposes a Greek people. Their religious beliefs mirrored those of other Greeks. They worshipped the same main gods of the Greek pantheon, took part in Greek religious cults, claimed descent from Greek mythic or semi-mythic figures, spoke a Greek dialect, and embraced other aspects of Greek art and culture. During my research, I repeatedly came across the suggestion that one factor that differentiated Macedonians from other Greeks is that they continued archaic Greek customs such as burial practices, that in regard to the burial practices at least, that had fallen out of favor or ceased in other parts of Greece after the 6th century BCE, but if anything, the fact that they kept ancient Greek burial practices and other customs 
customs alive seems to go to the point that they must have long been steeped in Greek culture to have known of these practices and have kept them going. The ancient Macedonians even competed in ancient Greek games such as the Olympics, which only Greeks were allowed to enter. But there's an interesting story that should be noted. The aforementioned Macedonian king, Alexander I, wanted to compete in the Olympic Games, but there were those who objected on the grounds that they questioned his Greek ancestry. And here's a bit from Herodotus. Now that these descendants of Perdiccas are Greeks, as they themselves say, I myself chance to know, and will prove it in the later part of my history. Furthermore, the Hellenodikai, who manage the contest at Olympia, determined that it is so. For when Alexander chose to contend and entered the list for that purpose, the Greeks who were to run against him wanted to bar him from the race, saying that the contest should be for Greeks and not for foreigners. Alexander, however, proving himself to be an Argive, was judged to be a Greek. And as already mentioned, the ancient Greek poet Hesiod, in his Catalogue of Women, suggests that the Macedonians are descended from none other than Zeus, and she conceived and bare to Zeus, who delights in the thunderbolt, two sons, Magnes and Macedon, or Magnus and Macedon, rejoicing in horses, who dwell round about Pieria and Olympus. And Magnes again begot Dictus, and godlike Polydectes. Now, I read someone claim that in a certain passage from his histories that Herodotus describes Alexander I as a Greek who ruled over Macedonians, but I don't think it's actually worded that bluntly or necessarily carries the connotation they're trying to suggest. Here's the passage in question, and it's um, the Histories, Book 5, Chapter 20, Section 4, and I'll read the verse or passage or section that comes before it, too, for context. And it's describing a famous story where Alexander tricked or ambushed a bunch of Persians by having some of his men disguise themselves as women. And so here it is. When he had said this and the Persians had given their consent, he sent the women out and away to their apartments. Alexander then took as many beardless men as there were women, dressed them in women's clothes, and gave them daggers. These he brought in and said to the Persians, I believe, men of Persia, that you have feasted to your heart's content. All that we had and all besides that we could find to give you has been set before you. And now we make you a free gift of our best and most valued possession, our own mothers and sisters. Be aware that in so doing we are giving you all the honor that you deserve. And tell your king who sent you how his Greek viceroy of Macedonia has received you hospitably, providing food and bedfellows. So Herodotus has Alexander I describing himself as the Persian king's Greek viceroy of Macedonia, but in this context, Alexander could be emphasizing the word Greek to make a point or thought it was important to emphasize his own Greekness, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's denying the Greekness of his fellow Macedonians. That's how I interpret it anyway. And seeing how elsewhere in the histories, Herodotus almost goes out of his way to emphasize the fact that the Macedonians were Greek. I don't think he'd be trying to counter that here. 
You know what I mean? Um, unless he was just doing his best to quote Alexander I. But still, it seems open to interpretation. And it certainly doesn't seem like Alexander is clearly saying, I'm Greek, but my fellow Macedonians aren't. And then Thucydides, a 5th century BCE uh, Athenian historian and general, has this to say about the history of the Macedonians. The country on the seacoast, now called Macedonia, was first acquired by Alexander, the father of Perdiccas, and his ancestors, originally Temenids from Argos. This was affected by the expulsion from Pieria of the Pierians, who afterwards inhabited Phagris or Phagris and other places under Mount Pangaeus, beyond the Strymon, and the Strymon being a river, I believe, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And I think that might be Mount Pangaeus, not Aegeus, uh, I think. Out of all the episodes I've ever done on the show on a historical topic, this has definitely been the most challenging <laughs> regarding uh, Greek place names, etc. And while I was researching this episode, you know, I was going all over the place to EDU sites, to uh, online virtual libraries, uh, pouring through my own digital and physical copies of history books, but I did sometimes stumble upon uh, conversations or threads on, on Quora, which I know that's not, not considered a scholarly source, Quora, you know, kind of like Wikipedia, which uh, I've been criticized, <laughs> even when I haven't gone to Wikipedia, been criticized for going to Wikipedia. But I've said on the show numerous times that I think Wikipedia kind of gets a bad rap. There may be a couple of times when I've proven... Wikipedia wrong in a sense, where I've been reading up on a topic that I know something about, and a claim on Wikipedia will kind of trigger my aforementioned uh, spidey sense. And so I'll try to fact check it, and I'll be unable to, you know, to verify the, the claim I found on Wikipedia, unable to find it repeated on a reputable source or whatever. Or there'll be times where I'll follow a citation and the source being cited will say something different. Perhaps it's a nuanced difference, or perhaps the Wikipedia claim just turns out to be completely wrong or contradicts the actual source. But that being said, I think the majority of the time, the information you find on Wikipedia is actually correct. But if you're going to be doing a, a school paper, a scholarly thesis, doing a podcast episode where you're concerned with trying to be as factually accurate as possible. If you do get it, any information from Wikipedia, you should always double check it and you should always try to validate the sources and follow the citations. But anyway, to get back on track, I had noticed that there was another Thucydides quote that people had tried to use to say, you know, that in the ancient world, the Macedonians weren't considered Greeks. And the passage in question describes different military units and what kind of peoples and troops they were, um, you know, composed or comprised of. And I had noticed that it makes a distinction between Macedonians and barbarians. So at least within that quote, it's not claiming that Macedonians were barbarians, as we were discussing earlier. But I found an exchange regarding this passage from Thucydides on Korah. 
And so someone asks, why does Thucydides clearly separate the Macedonians from the Greeks, Hellenes? And he has a quote here. In all, there were about 3,000 Hellenic heavy infantry accompanied by the Macedonian cavalry. And that's Thucydides, book four. Um, I don't know if it'd be yeah, chapter 124. And then a Greek speaker replies, because it is very easy to take out of context a below-average truncated translation and present it as quote-unquote evidence that the Macedonians aren't Greek. Don't worry, I will correct it for you. Let's look at the original Thucydides Historiae, I think it is. And uh, so they provide the actual Greek. And then he says, here's my translation. The entire Hellenic hoplite contingent numbered 3,000 strong. Then the cavalry followed, which consisted of at least 1,000 composed of Macedonians and Chalcidians, which I think is just a variant of Chalcidians, I think. And then followed a large host of barbarians. And then here's their commentary. In this case, the seasoned military man, Thucydides, felt the need to specify the strength of the heavy infantry, hoplites, composed of mostly Peloponnesian troops, versus the cavalry of northern Greeks, Macedonians and Chalcidians. If the cavalry wasn't Greek, then who are the barbarians you choose to omit in your question? Maybe because the barbarians happened to probably be Illyrian and Peonian auxiliaries. And why did you omit the Chalcidian riders who are listed along with the Macedonians? Maybe because Chalcis, I think it is, is also in Greece. But I thought that was interesting. And so earlier I mentioned Athenian statesman and orator Demosthenes and how he had some not-so-nice things to say about Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father. He actually wrote a series of speeches against him. At the time of Philip II, Macedonia was a rising military power, and Demosthenes supposedly saw them as a threat to Athenian greatness or the Athenian way of life. Here's what's arguably his most famous quote regarding his denouncement of Philip of Macedon, and it's from his third speech on the matter, I believe. But if some slave or superstitious bastard had wasted and squandered what he had no right to, heavens, how much more monstrous and exasperating all would have called it. Yet they have no such qualms about Philip and his present conduct, though he is not only no Greek nor related to the Greeks, but not even a barbarian from any place that can be named with honor, but a pestilent knave from Macedonia, whence it was never yet possible to buy a decent slave. And of course, this is inflammatory political rhetoric, but some speculate that nevertheless Demosthenes may have been playing to certain xenophobic attitudes the Athenians may have harbored towards the Macedonians. And while we're on this point, here I am reading verbatim from historical sources, but I'm going to turn to Cora again for a moment. Don't judge me too harshly. Uh, while I was researching this episode, I stumbled upon yet another Cora thread, where someone was asking about how other Greeks viewed the Macedonians, and a classicist stepped in, and I thought she had a really interesting response. It's kind of lengthy, yet concise somehow at the same time. I think because she's able to pack in a lot of information into easy-to-digest chunks, but here we go. And so the question was, did the ancient Greeks see Macedonians as foreigners? And she replied, 
Anyone in the archaic, and she says circa 800 to 510 BC, and the classical periods, five, you know, circa 510 to 323 BC, who is not Macedonian, regarded the Macedonians as foreigners, just how like anyone who is not Athenian regarded the Athenians as foreigners, anyone who is not a Spartan regarded the Spartans as foreigners, anyone who is not a Corinthian regarded the Corinthians as foreigners, etc., the ancient Greeks, you see, were not one unified people under the rule of a single national government, like Greek people today. Instead, they lived in polis, or city-states, and I believe polis is um, plural of polis, one single city-state. I probably didn't have to say that, but anyway, each person primarily identified with his or her native polis. Their shared identity as quote-unquote Greeks, Hellenes or Hellenes, was only a loose secondary identity that most people probably did not really think about on a day-to-day -day basis. And she continues, for instance, if I had been born in Athens in 450 BC, then I would think of myself as an Athenian, first and foremost, and a Hellene only second. The Athenians saw other Greeks as foreigners and non-Greeks as barbarians. The ancient Greeks were bound together only by a shared language, a shared culture, shared religious practices, and a vague sense of shared national identity. Politically and socially speaking, each polis was its own entity, separate and distinct from all others. So yes, the Greeks saw the Macedonians as foreigners. I do not think this is what you meant to ask, though. I think the answer you are really looking for is whether the ancient Greeks considered the Macedonians Greek, which is another matter entirely. One thing that is certain is that the ancient Macedonians undoubtedly considered themselves Greek. The other Greeks, however, do not seem to have been quite so sure. The ancient Macedonians spoke a very obscure and archaic dialect of Dorian Greek, with influences from non-Greek languages such as Illyrian and Thracian. Most other Greeks probably could not understand it. And I've heard or read differing opinions on this. I've heard some people like her say that it would have been so different or archaic that other Greeks would have understood of understood it, and I've heard or read others say that other Greeks probably would have been able to understand it. Uh, perhaps it depends on which other Greeks we're talking about and which dialect of Greek they spoke. But someone made a pretty good point on Cora once again, that Alexander the Great, and I always love this, was tutored by Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher. And I believe the order is Socrates, if he existed, there's a debate about that, would have been the mentor or teacher of Plato. Plato. Plato was the mentor or teacher of Aristotle, and Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great. And I believe Aristotle also tutored uh, Ptolemy, by the way. But uh, someone on Cora tried to make the point that Alexander probably didn't have to learn a different language in order to understand Aristotle, and also that um, the the ancient Greek playwright Euripides, who I remember way back in the day, back in my early 20s, I read The Bacchae, and it's one of my favorite uh, ancient plays. There's academic debate now over whether or not Euripides was really in Macedonia. It's commonly believed that um, Euripides chose to go to Macedonia and presented plays and wrote some of his plays there, including the Bacchae. Uh, the Bacchae. And now apparently that's somewhat contested in academia, and I'm not sure what the consensus is.
But um, they make the point that Euripides put on plays in Macedon. So, you know, I, I don't know. And then, as I mentioned earlier, by a certain point, the at least the aristocracy of Macedon had adopted Attic Greek, which was kind of the prestige language at the time. And the um, Macedonian language, which is thought to have been a, a Greek Doric dialect, uh, kind of fell out of favor. And I think Attic Greek took over and then eventually Koine Greek, I believe. And that's before the Slavic invasions, etc., and I believe it was by the 4th century that the, as I said earlier, that the Macedonian aristocracy adopted Attic Greek. And Alexander the Great lived in the 4th century, so I wonder if he was speaking uh, Attic Greek. And that, that might go to the point about how well he and Aristotle were able to communicate. Perhaps they were both speaking Attic Greek, I'm not sure. And Aristotle was from Athens, at least after he joined Plato's Academy. I think he may have been born elsewhere. And Attic Greek was spoken in Athens at the time. So maybe they did communicate in uh, Attic Greek. Disclaimer once again, not a classicist, not a professional historian, but I'm trying my best. But this classicist on Cora, I call her a classicist. It says that Technically, she doesn't have a master's. She has a BA in history and classical studies. I don't know if that merits being referred to as a classicist or not. Uh, just trying to be as honest as possible. She continues, Macedonian culture was widely seen as repulsive and backwards. While most Greeks lived in poles, Macedonia was a kingdom with large rural areas. For many Greeks, that simply was not the Greek way of life. I mean, there may have been people like Demosthenes who still held that view or people who kind of looked down their noses at Macedonians. But I also believe it's the case that at least by the time of, say, Philip and uh, Alexander the Great, that Macedonia had already been adopting and importing art styles and art traditions and customs from other parts of Greece, as we were talking about with Euripides. They enjoyed the arts. They had theater and playwriting. Uh, there were Macedonian kings who were patrons of the Greek arts. And I believe Alexander the Great himself really appreciated the traditional Greek arts, uh, theater and music. He had a formal Greek education. I mean, hey, he was tutored by Aristotle. So this idea that Macedonian culture was seen as repulsive and backwards, it might depend on what point in ancient Macedonian history we're talking about and how harsh the critics were and who the critics were. You know, are we talking about um, Demosthenes and how he saw the Macedonians? And like I said, there may have been certain xenophobic attitudes towards the Macedonians. But again, I don't want to be too harsh on this um, this person on Cora because I think so up to this point they've made great points. And they might not be trying to say that the Macedonians were, their culture was repulsive and backwards. They may, might just be trying to make the point that certain Greeks in the ancient world may have seen them that way. Perhaps the, you know, the Athenians during a point where there was tension between <laughs> Macedonia and Athens. Uh, I, I don't know. But, and perhaps this is how 
the commenter on YouTube felt about some of the things I said in passing. But you know, I feel like it can perhaps be kind of dangerous to throw out words like backwards and repulsive when talking about ancient Macedonian culture, because it might wrongly lead people to assume that they were running around like cavemen in the mud. When if you look at ancient Macedonian art, it's really, I mean, it's beautiful. And it looks like the Greek art from other areas of Greece. And unless you're an art expert, you probably would just look at it and automatically think it's from some other part of Greece, that it's from Athens or whatever. You wouldn't necessarily say, oh, that looks like Macedonian art. It's Greek art. Just amazing mosaics, frescoes, and sculptures, and murals, etc. And she actually goes into the story we already covered about King Alexander I and the Olympics. And she says in Book 5 of the Histories, which was written in around 431 BC, or thereabouts, the historian Herodotus of Halicarnassus, who lived circa 484 BC to 425 BC, records that in either 504 or 500 BC, King Alexandros, meaning King Alexander I of Macedon, wanted to participate in the Olympic Games, but his right to do so was contested because people insisted that Macedonians were not true Greeks. Did I say insisted right? Sound a little weird. Anyway, according to Herodotus, Alexandros I responded by insisting that he was personally directly descended from the ancient kings of the unquestionably Greek city of Argos. The Hellenodikai, the judges of the Olympic Games, investigated this claim and declared that he could participate in the Games since he was of Argive lineage. Later Macedonian kings were allowed to participate in the Olympics as well. And then she goes into Demosthenes and his denouncement of Philip II. There were questions over how Greek the Macedonians truly were well into the 4th century BC. The Athenian orator Demosthenes famously called Philippos II of Macedon a quote-unquote barbarian, a word which at the time meant quote-unquote non-Greek, although it could be pejoratively applied to Greeks who were perceived as acting like non-Greeks. Demosthenes can hardly be called representative of mainstream opinion, but it seems he was probably not the only one who shared this view that the Macedonians were not true Greeks. At the same time, though, as Macedonia's power grew, acceptance of the Macedonians' Greek self-identity was clearly growing among non-Macedonians. After the Third Sacred War, 356 to 346 BC, in which a coalition of Poles with the aid of Macedonia defeated the Polis of Phokis, P-H-O-K-I-S, Philippos II, Philip II, persuaded the Amphictyonic Council to give Phocus's two seats on the council to Macedonia. And hopefully I'm saying Phocus right, P-H-O-K-I-S. And I think that was the home to the sanctuary of the Oracle of Delphi, but there's also Phocis, P-H-O-C-I-S. And I don't know if the two are the same. Let me know in the uh, comment section of the YouTube version. The Amphictyonic Council was one of the most important Panhellenic institutions, and Macedonia having two seats on the council would have made it very difficult for anyone to continue to deny that the Macedonians were Greek. Alexandros III, 
Alexander the Great, like his father, Philippos II, cultivated a thoroughly Greek self-image, eventually by the end of the 4th century BC, around two centuries after the time of Alexandros I, the Macedonians were finally almost universally accepted as full Greeks, albeit rather reluctantly by some. But I thought that was interesting and informative, and once again, in fairness to her, she might not have been trying to say, she probably wasn't, that she herself thought that ancient Macedonian culture was repulsive and backwards. She may, be, may have been saying that there may have been some Greeks who viewed it that way. And like I think I said a couple of times, or touched on a couple of times now, one of the reasons why other Greeks may have looked kind of down their noses at Macedonians or looked at them differently is because they were practicing archaic customs, but archaic Greek customs, which probably means they were practicing Greek customs for quite some time, keeping these old practices alive. And I mentioned specifically how they were described as practicing archaic burial practices, uh, which have also been described as Homeric funerary rites. And Homeric obviously referring to Homer, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it's also an adjective for the, the Greek Bronze Age, which he writes about in his poems. So probably very old practices or customs. And there were a couple of other historians I was going to quote regarding how the ancient, other ancient Greeks viewed Macedonians, but these two come along kind of later, and both after the time of Alexander, when Macedonians would have been more widely accepted as Greek anyway. But maybe I still will for the heck of it. So we have the Greek geographer Strabo. I'm not sure if I mentioned Strabo yet or not. I've forgotten some of what I've already covered. We're well over the hour mark now. But Strabo writes, There remain of Europe. First, Macedonia and parts of Thrace, that are contiguous to it and extend as far as Byzantium. Secondly, Greece. And thirdly, the islands that are close by. Macedonia, of course, is a part of Greece. Yet now, since I am following the nature and shape of the places geographically, I have decided to classify it apart from the rest of Greece, and to join it with that part of Thrace which borders on it and extends as far as the mouth of the Euxine and the Propontis. But there we have Strabo saying that, not necessarily touching on a cultural elements, but that he considered Macedonia to be at least geographically a part of Greece. And then we have the historian Appian writing in the first century CE, who was, I believe, Greek but had Roman citizenship. And he mentions in his Macedonian Wars that the Macedonians boast their descent from Argive kings. And we already covered the Argid dynasty, etc., so that doesn't add much to the conversation. But now that we've discussed some of the views or attitudes towards the Macedonians, let's get back to Alexander the Great and the continuing history of Macedonia. In 326 BC, after the grueling battle of the Hydespes, Alexander's men became demoralized and refused to march further into India. 
Three years later, back in Babylon, Alexander the Great, at the young age of 32, passed away. After a two-week-long bout with illness, the speculation regarding his cause of death ranges from poisoning, which was apparently not uncommon in the Macedonian court, to infectious disease, potentially typhoid or malaria. In 168 BCE, the Roman Republic, not yet the Roman Empire, conquered Macedonia at the end of the Third Macedonian War. They abolished the Macedonian monarchy and divided Macedonia into four client republics. Macedonia was officially made a Roman province after the Fourth Macedonian War. The Roman province of Macedonia, in disregard for Macedonia's ancient borders, included other areas such as Epirus, Thessaly, and parts of Thrace and Illyria. This new reordering would lead to a wider variety of inhabitants. In 330 CE, the Roman Emperor Constantine moved the capital of the empire from Rome to the city of Byzantium, renaming it Constantinople. Macedonia would become one of the most important provinces of the emerging Byzantine Empire, at least partly due to its close proximity to its capital, the aforementioned Constantinople, but it also contained the empire's second largest city, Thessaloniki. According to old Byzantine maps, there were supposedly two provinces bearing the name Macedonia. Macedonia Prima, meaning First Macedonia, which had Thessaloniki as its capital and corresponded to the modern Greek region of Macedonia, and Macedonia Salutaris, Salutaris or Teres, meaning wholesome. It was also known as Macedonia Secunda, meaning Second Macedonia. This second province more or less corresponds with the area of present-day North Macedonia. In the 4th and 5th centuries, Macedonia suffered waves of devastating onslaughts by barbarian peoples such as the Visigoths, Huns, and Vandals, although these invasions are said not to have had much effect on the ethnic composition of Macedonia, they did leave much of the area depopulated. And if things weren't already confusing enough, around 800 AD or CE, take your pick, the Byzantine Empress Irene of Athens created a province named Macedonia out of the so-called theme of Thrace, a theme being a kind of Byzantine military-slash-civilian province that was home to one of the main military-slash-administrative divisions of the Middle Byzantine Empire. These themes, or themata, were established following repeated Slavic invasions of the Balkans, and the Muslim conquests of certain parts of the Byzantine Empire. Apparently, this new theme or province, called Macedonia, had little in common geographically with ancient Macedon, and was located in what is today southern Thrace. The region that was once ancient Macedon, confusingly enough, then being located in the theme of Thessalonica, Capitalizing on the desolation left by the aforementioned barbarian onslaughts, Slavs settled in the Balkan Peninsula, and with the help of the Avars and Turkish Bulgars, began invading parts of Byzantium, including Macedonia, and reaching as far south as Thessaly and the Peloponnese. Isolated pockets where the Slavs settled were referred to as Sclavinias by the Byzantines. Over time, Slavs begin to assimilate into Byzantine society, many even serving in the Byzantine military. 
Slavic settlers are said to have assimilated, there's a lot of alliteration, a certain amount of the Hellenized and Romanized inhabitants of Macedonia, the Paeonians, Illyrians, and Thracians, while certain tribes' people that had fled to the mountains remained independent. And as I understand it, there's scholars who think that certain linguistic similarities that remain today among languages like Bulgarian, Albanian, Romanian, Macedonian, languages belonging to the so-called Balkan language area, could be the result of these interactions or intermingling between Romanized and non-Romanized indigenous peoples and the Slavs. And I'm going into all this just to demonstrate how much the demographics of Macedonia changed over time. And when you're talking about modern tensions between Greece and Macedonia, now the Republic of North Macedonia, we're not talking about the original Macedonian Greeks anymore. We're talking about a place now mostly populated by people of Slavic ancestry, and I believe an Albanian minority. The Albanians, I think it's thought, are the are descended from the ancient Illyrians, who I've mentioned numerous times during this episode. So in conclusion, do I think the ancient Macedonians were Greek? Certainly, and that seems to be the scholarly consensus as well. We could argue about to what extent they may have genetically intermingled with non-Greek neighbors they absorbed during Macedonian expansion or before, but certainly the Macedonians were Greek by blood or ancestry. They once again spoke a Greek dialect, worshipped the deities of the Greek pantheon, claimed lineage from Greek heroes, etc., and once again kept alive ancient Greek customs that had ceased in other parts of Greece, which to me says they must have been steeped in Greek culture for quite some time in order to still be speaking an archaic Greek dialect and keeping alive archaic Greek customs such as Homeric funerary practices. And in fairness, ancient sources, including ancient historians, might not always be 100% reliable, but there seems to be a tradition going back to at least the time of Herodotus, the 5th century BCE, that the Macedonians had intermingled with the Dorians, that the Macedonians were in fact a Greek people who spoke a Doric dialect. And there's also the tradition that you know, they were Argives or Argids uh, who had traveled up from the Peloponnese. So as far as I can tell, both ancestrally and culturally, the Macedonians were Greek. And this has been a long one, the longest in a while, and I'm exhausted. So as always, thanks for listening.